Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is uh, Sean Usmar, who's the founder and CEO of Triple Flag Precious Metals, who are a growing gold-focused royalty and streaming company with a proven execution capabilities in the most attractive segment of the market. Um, with a metallurgy and minerals background, Sean is an international mining executive with over 25 years' experience working around the globe in operational, financial, and executive uh, leadership roles. Um, we're going to get de- sort of discuss the success that Triple Flag has endured so far and what the future lies ahead. So that's welcome, Sean, to the podcast. How are you doing, Sean? Yeah, Rob, uh, good to see you. And thanks, thanks for the chance to chat to you. Yeah, and I appreciate your time um, over in uh, Canada at the moment. So um wondered if you can... Um, Give us a little bit of a background about yourself, um, your career. Um, obviously, I mentioned that you're in uh, that you studied, or your background is in metallurgy and minerals. Um, so, I just wanted to give us a, an overview of your career, um, how it's developed to what it is today. Yeah, um, well, I'll do my best. Uh, look, I started off in in operations with uh, a metallurgy and uh, materials engineering degree. So I was in steel and and the aluminium sector, and I guess here in the UK I can say aluminium rather than aluminium. <laughs> it took a while to get used to, but it was it was a great time, you know, in the, in the 90s, really just get hard operating experience. And I was super lucky. I got a national scholarship from uh, GenCorp at the time to go and do really my MBA anywhere in the world, uh, which took me to yeah, the United States, did a two-year MBA at, uh, at Kellogg at Northwestern. Thought I was going back into operations actually in South Africa at the end of that. But that took me to London uh, with Billiton, which, you know, Gencord bought Royal Dutch Shells, uh, mining assets had listed in London. And it was just a really exciting time in the mining space. And I love this industry. I, I, I don't know how many sectors can take you to so many different parts of the world and just expose you to so many different cultures and people. But that was a great window for me then to transition really into sort of corporate m um, strategy and, you know, that was a time with uh, Gilbertson, um, you know, Mick Davis and others, where the sector, there was no super cycle talk, but there was a, a lot of focus on consolidation, a lot of transactions. So, you know, worked on deals in, you know, Colombia, projects in China, things in Australia, worked on the BSV Billiton merger, which was a great experience, uh, both on the deal itself and then afterwards on, on the integration, uh, which was just wonderful experience. And then when Mick left um, to found Extrata, I was just really lucky to be one of his first seven executives there co-heading at M&A. You know, that, it was a time just prior to the super cycle theme where um, did a deal in Germany, worked on the MIM transaction, uh, spent three months uh, integrating the business in, you know, down in uh, Queensland. And um, that then took me into, you know, corporate executive roles, uh, CFO of uh, the world's largest Toralois business in South Africa. My first son was born in London before doing that, then my daughter there. And, you know, we came to Canada when um, <clears throat> we took over Falconbridge and, you know, came over to integrate that business as CFO. Uh, and, um, yeah, worked through um, through the merger with um, with Glencore. 
And then um, just after that, I wanted to stay in Canada. Um, I ended up with three opportunities in Canada, one of which was um, CFO of Barrick at a time where Barrick really had um, a lot of debt and wasn't making cash and gold prices were going down. I think the restructuring experience, um, which I think extracted incredibly well as an acquisitor, acquisitive company, um, really was an area I felt I could make the biggest impact. I uh, went in there, we took down GNA, we uh, reset the cost structure, uh, right-sized the portfolio. I think we had 13.1 billion in debt um, and we'd hemorrhaged a lot of cash flow. And so even in 1050 gold that uh, in 2015, we turned it around, we made 400 odd million in cash flow, pay down a little over 4 billion in debt. And that was around the time I wasn't looking for it, but this opportunity found itself with Elliot. And it was really a, an opportunity for a sec that I'd seen as a miner and saw the natural arbitrage, particularly with um, diversifiers, with just the cost of capital on that, to start a business and in some ways recapture the early days of Extractor, which was just intoxicating for me. Um, and so um, really the, the chance to partner with a group like Elliot with a clean sheet of paper, we didn't have existing assets, to build a team from scratch and build a business like this and, and to be able to compete out the gate with the biggest in the space was just too too alluring not to do. So um that's it, nearly six years ago now, and it's, it's just been a wonderful journey. Yeah, so I just wonder if you can tell us about, um, obviously, Triple Flag uh, Precious Metals. Um, and obviously, before we, uh, before we uh, came on or started recording the podcast, you uh, told me why you chose that name. So, um, yeah, you can in include that in your uh, description. Yeah, for anybody who's started a business, um, it's a fun time where it's great to be part of large organizations, but you know, in the beginning, just even simple acts, even when you're backed by now a $50 billion fund, um, opening bank accounts suddenly takes on a whole new level of work. And you've got the fun of building your website, deciding your vision, and, and, and what are you going to call your company? And um, <clears throat> we threw a lot of names out, and I came up with Triple Flag because mining's taken me a lot of places in the world. I've lived in five countries, uh, but my three kids are born in three countries, uh, hence the three flags. And the name Triple Flag, which stuck. And um, I think it ties into the sort of almost family values within our business and there's very international flavor. Um, so, yeah, just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about obviously the, the growth of the company um, as, an, as an overview to sort of where it is today. Obviously, I've got a lot more questions I, I want to ask you in particular. Yeah, I think to understand that, it's important to understand how we thought about competing because, you know, we emerged in 2016. I think when we spoke to you know the, the banking brains trust out there, the conventional wisdom was you've got these very large established, very impressive companies like Franklin Nevada and that that have had these incredible returns, got this great capability, and you're never going to compete with those guys, of course. So you're going to have to go to dodgy jurisdictions, particularly back with private money in order to compete. And um, I think those who follow the space would have seen, particularly in the last year or two, we've seen a lot of new entrants who like the business model and they compete more at the smaller end. And the skill set there is a little different, where typically they're, they're accumulating, they're very good at ferreting out existing royalties, which might have been struck in the 70s or whenever, right? They, they buy these, they, uh, they accumulate a diversified portfolio, typically not cash generating uh, and that end. And the barriers to entry are lower. And, and some compete with more of a generator model where they perhaps uh, take the exploration properties, spin them out to juniors and take back the royalty. That's not where we compete. I think the barriers to entry are low. Uh, the check sizes are smaller. We out the gate set up, particularly with Elliot's backing, uh, which allowed us to compete. And we we wanted to deploy about a billion dollars over the five years was our plan, and then transition into the public realm. And that's pretty much what we've done. 
And we felt that if you're competing with, let's say, the big three, that there's room for a fourth large diversified streamer. And there was a view that we were not going to just compete for a fixed pie. The streaming space um, really still represents single digits of uh, overall funding to the mining sector. And I worked on a streaming deal in, in, uh, in Barrick for $610 million when we restructured. I'd first seen it when we bought MIM and saw the arbitrages of diversifying. And so it's not just the technical skill sets that are important, but the commercial, the ability to structure these things from an accounting point of view, how to understand you know, what you do with rating agencies and structure that correctly to deliver a full product to a mining business, whether they want to repair a balance sheet, whether they want to acquire a new business, whether they want to build their next mine, or just uh, get rid of a, a non-core asset, for example, and, uh, and, and enjoy that, that incremental value. So we set out to do that. We said we were going to compete typically 100 to $500 million check size. Typically, we've done smaller, we've done bigger. But um, we felt the capabilities, the barriers to entry, the check sizes were, were material, and there was an opportunity to grow the space. And it was grounded in saying we're going to focus on um, operating mines or near operating mines if it's a larger check. I don't want to uh, take on the never-never journey of an unpermitted situation for a large check. We've all seen that movie, and it can be pretty pretty difficult, uh, and then maintain the sanctity of this model. So focus on streams and royalties, don't take on a lot of um, illiquid junior equities as part of that, which some have chosen to do to compete. That's a choice, a strategic choice. We felt there was enough opportunity to stay focused on, on um, what we wanted to, and also the understanding that very often the best mines are found uh, you know, with existing mines. And so maintain that exposure to that exploration side um, of property that's contiguous to these operating mines. And so you fast forward, you know, we've seen, uh, we've deployed about a billion seven in just over five years. Uh, the actual net investment now is just over, say, a billion dollars. So very close to our intentions. We've done 17 deals, 13 of which have come by working opposite mining companies to help put ideas in front of them in a very intimate way to help solve their problems. So not just competing with bank-led processes. And what that's meant is, you know, we've seen a 26% cumulative annual growth rate in our ounce delivery over the last five years, the highest in the sector. We've um, really seen, for example, a doubling of our ounces in the last two years, but a tripling of our cash flow. And you'll see the portfolio duration, which is really quite distinctive, very gold and silver focused, about 90%, um, is um, very importantly quite long duration. Uh, it's more than two decades that only the sector leaders with Frank and Nevada and we can have. So we've really been quite focused and quite disciplined on building a, a strong cash generative, high margin uh, portfolio with a lot of duration associated and a lot of optionality. And so 15 assets have generated that out of 78. And then the remainder are mostly in Canada and uh, and um, the United States, for example. And those will perhaps deliver in the future for our investors. Um, how did your success and experience, obviously some of the companies that you work with, like BHP, Extrata, Barrick, transition into building a precious metals royalty and streaming company? Look, I think we're all products of our, of our journey and our experience, right? It doesn't form how we view the world. I think the first thing is I've, I've had the good fortune of working with just some very impressive uh, mining titans in many ways from my career, from, you know, Mick Davis, Brian Gilbertson, Chip Goodyear, Anderson, and others over time, um, you know, worked for companies that have been very large that we've helped with structure. Others like Extrata, when we started, we were in the uh, basement of JP Morgan's offices on embankments in London, like six or seven of us. 
which then obviously built into you know a sixty billion dollar business over over a decade. So that journey and understanding those tensions and understanding the differences between let's say more bureaucratic organizations with wonderful assets versus those that were more entrepreneurial and um, had more agility to them uh, really have helped inform how I've, I've thought about setting this business up. So you know for us um, we've got a team of thirteen. Um, uh, to me, the ability to make sure that you've really got a great uh, fit with the talent that you have in your organization is paramount. Um, life's too short to work with people that you that don't challenge you and that you don't admire and respect. And uh, I'm fortunate to have that in this team. And so we've been very, very selective at a, a good time to get talent, I think, into a business like this. But in turn, the networks that we've got and that we work with really do matter. We don't go wholesale to a large, let's say, engineering firm to assist us on diligence. We, we cover the bulk of what we need internally, and that's everything from you know, geology to mining to the ESG components to accounting to legal. Um, but in turn, the specializations that, if I kept it on staff, would make my GNA higher uh, and untenable, and we'd change the character and the agility of our organization. We've really wanted to set up, and I learned this from Mechadex Strata, but an organization with high personal engagement, and a very high level of personal wealth potential, creation potential. And so you'll see that today. I mean, you know, we, we created the equity ownership of this business by generating good returns. And, you know, we own 5% of this business as a management team. Every single member of our team, this is our largest source of personal uh, wealth that we've got. So we are supremely aligned with our shareholders because we are significant shareholders in this business. And that really drives a very specific culture, which I think is quite distinct. So I've seen the full spectrum of different things within the businesses. I think the diversified global experience early on and then the precious experience within Barrick, um, I think is very complementary. And when you consider the opportunity set in the space, uh, particularly for polymetallics, the battery metal EV theme is, uh, is, is accelerating. And if you consider just the significant amount of uh, gold and silver and say copper deposits, for example, or lead zinc deposits, um, 65% of our gold and silver ounces actually come through those channels. And I think there's a lot of additional value. So our skill sets and that experience and those networks, I think it's quite distinct and very helpful. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, uh, obviously you mentioned the management team and how key they are. I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the management team and I suppose their their skill sets and the value that they add to the business. No, it's... Um, People, are, we, we're not, you know, we're not operating mines here. We're not uh, running equipment and machinery. Um, it really is the the energy and the capabilities of this team that's delivered what we have today. And I know it's an obvious statement, but I think it's often overlooked. Um, <clears throat> and there's no substitute at the end of the day for being able to look back on what you've done as opposed to what you intend to do. Um, you know, when I started this early on, um, I was just it was good fortune in the first week to come across. I needed a good lawyer, commercial lawyer, and I've worked with a wide range of different lawyers over time. Lawyers very often are better at finding all the reasons you can't do stuff as opposed to, you know, having a good ethical overlay and then the talent to be able to um, really help uh, structure good deals and work through things. We had a wonderful guy like that in the struggle called uh, Ben amazing. But um, this is a person I didn't know and then the first week was introduced to. We've worked a lot as we've structured this team, almost on a probationary period, to see if the fit is there. Um, and we've had the good fortune to do that. And Sheldon, who's now my CFO and, and is actually an accountant and a, and a lawyer, a law partner previously, 
my background and had worked on the COVID of Panama transaction at Inmate, Office of Frank and Nevada. So I had firsthand deep experience there, uh, was, was one of the founding members and um, allowed me to operate autonomously from our, our uh, capital provider, but really to help us structure these, these transactions in a sensible way. And uh, it's just uh, you know, an, an incredible commercial deal because also when you're structuring deals with debt providers, equity providers, the intercreditor principles to do that in a in a very good way is um, something that's like a ninja. It's very very good. Um, you know, on the technical front, came across uh, many flavors. Um, you know, particularly on geology, because there's so many things, and we've seen some stuff in the news recently again, where if you get that wrong, um, it, it's hard to come back back out of that. So. We've got a young talent that we were fortunate to get in the form of James Dendel as a resource engineer, worked for SRK in the UK, all over the world, though, with his projects. Has an uncanny um, head on his shoulders just uh, with the things he's seen and just his temperament, knows how to engage people very well. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example. When I looked at one of the deals we did with Opposites and Terra, we bought a portfolio uh, of um, royalties from them, which included Fostival. And that was public domain information where he digitized all of that that built this up when the Swan Zone was first making itself known and really could project with really quite impressive certainty what we feel probabilistically that would deliver, which allowed us, it was a key determinant to that transaction, which was again bilateral. Um, it just has a great talent. And I think that component to that has been a very important um, differentiated times in transactions. We also do a lot of work with our our partners, once we've done deals, to really assist them and share our views. And occasionally that actually helps them think about how they can maximize the extraction of, of their own bodies. Um, you know, we've got uh, a mix of accounting talent. Evan Barry used to run, you know, the year end at Barrick for many years. He's uh, got way more horsepower than we require. Again, um, I feel super, super fortunate. He's our, our group controller and helps us on some of the important accounting structuring that we need to do. Um, you know, we've got a, a mining engineer who's uh, joined us recently, but it worked for us for many years and uh, has replaced one who just retired recently. And, um, you know, the guy's a 35-year veteran that's worked all over the world. He's one of the most senior mining engineers within Barrick, for example. Um, and it just has this ability at times to see through things to help our mining partners save cost and help their, their certainty and execution and obviously help us assess things. Um, you know, we've uh, it's, uh, I've got some ex-bankers in there that have assisted us on the MA component, and um, you know, Katie Board, who um, really helps us both on talent because we're a talent organization, but also um, so everything from due diligence to hiring, but also on the ESG front, and that is a core to our identity from the businesses we've been in as a capital provider. It's just good business. You really got to make sure you've got the right partners that you can support them afterwards with the privilege to operate. And we've really tried to think about how we can play a role in, in uh, climate and climate change. And we've done that as a carbon neutral business as well. So I can go on a long time. I'm super passionate. And our board is another key component that McDavis is on the board and we've got several others. We're very fortunate with that kind. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you can see you're, you're passionate about uh, the, the business. And obviously, we spoke off air as well. So, yeah, now you can see that and that's coming through. Um, your largest investor and supporter is Elliot Management. Um, led by the prominent Paul Singer, um, who's been described as the smartest and toughest money manager in the hedge fund industry. Um, what attracted him to you and the gold market in general? I think him and his team, um, you know, I think the first thing is, as you've said, it's no secret that as part of their portfolio ex uh, exposure, you know, they, they, they like gold exposure. 
And then when you look at the menu of how you can get that from owning physical with the cost associated with it to ETFs, again, with the cost and the lack of optionality associated with that beyond price exposure, you know, gold equities, which, um, you know, if you look at price cycles, um, you can get some good leverage, but often there's been issues with, um, you know, certainly inflationary environments, uh, margin compression, and we're in that kind of environment at the moment. Um, but also capital allocation uh, faux pas, which have happened in, in sort of price cycles. And there's a risk there's a risk characteristic there, which I think is, is not ideal for them. And many journalist investors, they're not a, a focused, um, you know, gold investor, for example. But the, 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 the track record of groups like Franklin Nevada specifically, the business model, if you execute that well, um, I think is something they study deeply, really like the characteristics. You know, I think gold with yield was the sort of moniker because, you know, you not only get this ounce exposure and you look at the growth that we've delivered over time here already, and then these sort of multi-decade portfolios are usually longer than and diversified, right? More diversified than a typical uh, gold company and longer in duration before you see reserve replacement that we have seen even in our five years. So I think those characteristics are not having to have the, the time surprising closure liabilities that you see within mining companies. You don't suffer the um, uh, margin compression with uh, within inflationary environments. So it's very helpful like that. And if you maintain the exposure to future exploration success, if you've negotiated these deals well, which we have, I think the multi-million ounce exposure that the underlying businesses we have in our portfolio in these operating lines it represents about 1% of our overall land package exposure. Now, the best uh, future exploration certainty probably comes contiguous to operating mines. And so we've got a lot of that in there. So I think um, the opportunity to try and build something from scratch like this um, and not pay Franco's big multiple at the time out the gate was part of the part of the, the thesis. And um, you know, from my point of view, I didn't really know them. I'd spent four hours with them. And I had some assumptions when I met these guys. I just realized that incredibly cerebral, no, no airs and graces, um, and, and just incredibly smart, uh, serious people. So it's been a privilege to work with them for over five years now. I couldn't have asked for a better partner. Um, obviously, talking about the, the actual market, how big is the actual royalty and streaming market? Um, and is there enough opportunities out there to compete with, obviously, the larger players, uh, the, the Franco Nevadas, um, the wheat and precious metals of, of the market? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I'll take you back to the comment I made earlier because um, I was actually on my way to my farewell at Barrack uh, before starting this the next day when I was cornered by a very large uh, Canadian bank uh, that's very active in the mining space. And they gave me their primer on the streaming and royalty space, which to summarize was, well, is the Franklin Nevadas and Wheatons. Again, you'll never compete with those guys. All the good deals have been done recently. Not much to do here. And you're going to have to go to some exotic jurisdictions with more risk if you want to compete successfully. And that's not what we set out to do, and it's not been our experience, and it's not our track record. So, you know, I take you back. I felt that if you look at the the mining sector and the access to capital, and as a Barrick CFO, I'd seen firsthand, um, it's not like there's a fire hose of conventional capital, you know, abundantly available all the time. I think um, the ability of capital allocators to really understand the risks and the rewards and opportunities here carefully is an important one. We tend to get to look under the hood and with the experience we've got, I think that puts us in a good position to make those calls. And we've looked at well over 500 deals for 17 over more than five years. So it's not like we're just throwing money around because that would be a terrible way to make returns for ourselves and our investors. 
So I think that's been a very, very important characteristic. But directly to your point, we felt that we could expand um, both the understanding and the acceptance of this form of funding to the entire sector. And I think we have seen more of that. We still spend time now with major mining companies at times with their accounting teams or others just explaining how to think about these trade-offs because we've been in those seats. We've we've had to do that work. So we, we, we're well equipped to do that, and particularly with diversifying. So there's not a lot of our competitors who've had some of their first-hand senior executive experience there and understand the vertically integrated value chains and the dependence at times of uh, upstream mines, uh, for example, and the cost structures throughout. So I think it equips us well. Um, just to put some of that in context, though, let's say like the last um, decade, there's been just under $20 billion worth of uh, streaming and royalty financing that's gone to the mining sector. But that is still single-digit market share. So the potential for that to grow, I think, is significant. And for me personally at this stage, like I, I cannot think of other than two weeks in our five-year period early on where there was like a calm and not a lot of active deal opportunity. We've been persistently busy. So it's more about um, understanding, having the discipline, making sure that your portfolio construction and fit is there. And when I look to the future and I just look at the opportunity set, particularly as the battery metal theme and you know, copper demand and things like that accelerate. And I've been driving Teslas now since, I don't know, 2012. I'm a, I'm a petrol head, but I, I think the, the, the consumer adoption is going to exceed what people expect. And then the value chain that's needed and the supply chain that's needed to support that with OEMs I think it's being underestimated. I think it's a big opportunity. So if you look at just copper mines alone, you know, um, there is, there's so many of the sulfides in particular that are byproducts of gold and silver associated. I think if you actually look at just the wood or other potential of those in that space, and you even discount those by 50% plus over some sort of time frame, the annual ounce potential of that is over 2 million ounces. And that's a heavily sort of discounted um, uh, sort of construct. And that would be more ounces than Franco, Wheaton, Royal Gold, ourselves and others would have generated in the last year. So I think that opportunity set is a life and well, and that's just in the copper construct. That's before you look at sort of PGMs, which we've screened gold out of. Um, we've got, uh, you know, lead zinc, but we've got some, I think that opportunity set is, uh, is definitely intact. And I don't believe you're going to see, certainly in the foreseeable future, a lot of generalist money that's necessarily going to usurp that. Is there a certain criteria that you look at uh, with a, a project or an asset um, that you sort of stick to um, that it must they must have certain criteria or attributes? Um, and also, is there a jurisdiction focus for you? Yeah, th there is, um, and the, and yeah, there, I think there has there has to be that discipline early on. And I, I you know I mentioned it previously. I think. The distinctiveness of the portfolio and the simplicity and cleanliness of it is, I think, is, is an important feature right now. You know, we don't do well in gas. We've got a carbon neutral portfolio. We won't do coal. Um, we are primarily, you know, gold and silver focused. You can think of about 90% of our value resides in that area. But we do have space and we've got the skill set, but particularly, um, you know, battery metals. So we've got some copper and nickel, a little bit of diamond exposure. But uh, we'll probably focus more if on the non-core um, commodity focus in, in the um, battery metals theme because we're well positioned to do so. And I think it, it's, a, it's a good complementary portfolio exposure for us. Jurisdictionally, the bulk of our portfolio is in, um, at largest is actually in Australia with North Parks and Fosterville and others. And then um, in uh, North and South America, um, good established mining jurisdictions. 
Um, we have got some exposure beyond that, and we look at everything on its merits. But ultimately, these are long-dated relationships and performance uh, where you need performance, contractual performance and contractual certainty. So not just the operator and the mineral endowment and the mine itself, but to ensure that you know, you've got a very strong likelihood of that happening. And so not just the technical due diligence, but obviously all the due diligence that goes into that and the commercial structuring and the protections is a large part of what we do in that, in that setup. So um, if any of your listeners um, you know, are interested, just to give um, some substance to that, you know, we've posted a couple of virtual mine tours because we can't take people on planes these days. Um, one is North Parks, where you know a mine in Australia, a few hours from Sydney, that's been in operation for over 25 years, and the management team has got like this a century time horizon in there. It's more than half a billion tons of resource, and uh, it's just a, a beautiful endowment with more than a thousand square kilometers of land package, like I think the world's first fully automated uh, uh, underground mine. So you look at that, you look at the ESG approach, and you look at the sophistication of that operation. It's on display there. But certainly jurisdictionally, you know, we've, uh, <clears throat> we did a deal that started on the side of a mining conference to replace high-cost debt, a former Anglo-American joint venture with Abiplat, which is now the focus of attention with Implats and Northern. Um, you know, some of the last high-grade Shalom Marensky and Bushwell Igneous Pumplets, um, a group which has the most perfect domestic um, uh, local ownership and partnership with the Royal Buffett Kang group. It's really their sovereign wealth fund. And you see it in the video that we posted They've built schools, they've built housing. Um, you know, we've put 100,000 US a year in scholarship programs really to give back to the industry and their doorstep communities. And so I think it shows, it's a showcase of, of the good that can happen uh, within the mining ecosystem and the potential that exists there. But it's also just good business. And I think it gives you a sense of the potential outside of the more traditional uh, mining jurisdiction. So, so we focus a lot on that. And as I said earlier, strategically, our emphasis and our priority is very much more on um, operating on their operating mines. It's generated the growth you've seen, and it, we've given, uh, I think it's slide 17 in my corporate deck. You'll see five and 10 year forward um, uh, you know, guidance on uh, essentially fully funded growth that's embedded. And that's before we do more, more acquisitions. And we've obviously been pretty acquisitive. And um, obviously, we mentioned, or you mentioned other commodities. Um, some of obviously your competitors have ventured outside of uh, precious metals, um, including uh, Vancouver, Nevada, um, exposure to oil and gas, uh, wheat and high profile, um, and somewhat controversial acquisition of a cobalt stream. Um, will Triple Flag look at other commodities? And if so, I suppose what commodities? And is there is there again particular attributes? that you would look at, or is it, again, case-by-case case basis depending on on the asset um, and attributes that obviously you just mentioned? Yeah, so, you know, I think our lens um, hasn't hasn't been flavor de jour. It's, it's actually stood so far the test of time in just over five years. And again, that was really more, we want to deploy uh, capital in a complementary way that actually helps the mining community because you can't have winners and losers. That's just bad business. So, um, you know, for us, uh, the precious focus from an investor point of view uh, and the arbitrage on display, particularly with polymetallics was, on, uh, was there. I've talked about, um, you know, the opportunity I see there for the future. But when we look, we've seen every flavor of uh, what comes in, right? Everything from pretty exotic niche commodities, which I'm, I'm not too excited about. I, I don't like taking market risk that I can't understand uh, or that tends to be super volatile. 
Um, but I think things like, and, and we've mentioned oil and gas and things like coal, that um, you know, we, we just won't do that. But um, the battery metal components with our backgrounds, and um, I think sometimes the, the better it turns on offer the characteristics of these mines, and at times the ability to actually work and assist our uh, operating partners uh, with our, our networks and experience um, is, is symbolic. So we've got some of that exposure. Um, you know, Tamarack, for, for some of your listeners may be familiar with Talon, uh, they've got a joint venture with Rio Tinto in Minnesota. And, um, you know, they've, we helped them with their original earning with a, with a royalty investment there. And um, they've just done an incredible job. They've, their resource is only on 750 meters of like a 30 kilometer strike. We think this is a district play. And they've just done a, an offtake with uh, a deal with Tesla, about a billion five. Uh, they're assuming they're going to develop this uh, mine in um, by, by 2026. But a good example of the nickel play before nickel was maybe as prominent uh, when we did the original investment, which we think is complementary. And as former CFO of one of the world's biggest nickel businesses, we've got a pretty good insight into into that uh, space and how to diligence those and make those investments. So we'll do those. Um, you know, we've looked at cobalt. Um, it's not something we wouldn't do. Um, but it would need to be very thoughtful. And we obviously looked at that back in the day. And I think an example where um, a commodity like that, which at times can see very high volatility, you know, I just always get a bit squeamish if it's elevated. Uh, I don't want to be the guy who see me with hindsight bought at the peak of the cycle. Um, and then, yeah, we've looked at the lithiums and that. We just haven't found anything that uh, really makes sense for us. But I think thematically, we, we're well equipped to invest in complement to precious but we won't we won't go overweight um i've got a couple more questions um what's the uh, differences or differentials for triple flag from other emerging um royalty and streaming companies yeah so you know we i mentioned we, we're not competing on the small end typically and there's a lot who do and do that better than we would you know ever pretend to we find it quite hard to um you know at times the net asset values in those areas um you know these are often linked to mines that May not, won't see the light of day in our lifetimes, right? Uh, some of them will, and people are looking for lottery tickets there. But, um, you know, it's not linked to generating good solid cash flow and the optionality that you find with operating mines. And that, that's important. Like Cyril Lindo is a good example. Our first deal for $250 million. We've had that for over five years. Um, we've really taken back over $150 million of silver from our streaming deal there. And we have the exact same silver reserve now as when we did the deal more than five years ago. And there's a big land package and this, this, uh, our partners at Nexus have got a great track record of reserve replacement and exploration success. You see that in um, you know, so many mines like North Parks and others. And Beridica, great example in Colombia. We did the deal next to um, uh, Newmont as last money in and the development to that. Um, on the 100 million we put in, we've nearly recouped that full investment in two years. The multi-million ounce mine is only starting now. They've already gone in the midst of COVID from 3,000 ton a day, expanding to 4,000 ton a day. And the land package that the reserve is on is only 0.18% of the overall land package. So the exploration potential, which is open at depth, all that exposure is very real, very tangible, and very exciting. So the differentiation here is we've really tried to set up to become like a Franco Nevada and if you look where they were in, say, 2008 and nine, just after the IPO, high quality, high margin. They had a lot of oil and gas at that time, which we don't have. But you look at the returns they've generated, the, the significant um, growing uh, dividend that they've put in place. We've got those characteristics, that long portfolio duration I mentioned earlier. 
they're only the, the, the two big guys have got. So that's very real, tangible. And you can see with hindsight what's there and you can see the forward-looking information we provided. You can see our deal-making track record in a sort of carbon neutral portfolio. But I think the one key differentiator when you think against the big guys, um, the largest streaming deal we've done in the last five years was North Park's $550 million, the largest precious deal that's been done in the space over this period. Um, the histogram of opportunity, I think, favors our ability to deploy capital, but seldom you find billion dollar plus deals in the space. That is a beautiful sweet spot for us at our size. So if a large competitor does that, it kind of moves the needle, but not really. For us, it meaningfully moves the needle. So we're in a very nice uh, stage of our growth journey with a, with a very clean uh, story and portfolio. Um, so as a conclusion, uh, any future catalyst investors should be keeping an eye on? Um, and also, what's the outlook for the next sort of 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so you know we're a new issuer. Um, I think part of our job is really just for um, new investors to understand how to think through um, us on the sort of overall landscape of the streaming and royalty space and appreciate the track record, appreciate what's out there. And, um, you know, for that to be able to be incorporated because it's, it's a low risk, high quality story. So I think that is the first. So um, we've got a number of growth catalysts with five ramping mines. You'll see more of that happening and we'll see our guidance will come out in February. But you can see our five and 10 year views that we've put out and the growth that continues uh, just within that time frame. All of those things would be catalysts, I think, for our investors. And then beyond that, you know, we're, we're very active on the deal fronts and uh, we'll, we'll continue to be discerning. But if you look at what we've done in the last five years, I'm more excited about the next five. Yes, yeah, certainly. Sean, sure, really appreciate your time and uh, give us an uh, overview uh, and an update on uh, Triple Flag's um, progress and success. And obviously wish you well for the next um, five years, although you'll probably come onto the podcast maybe later this year or next year and give us an update. Um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions that they want to ask, um, how can they go about doing that? Um, can you tell us a little bit about any social media platform channels that yeah. you might be on? Uh, look, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, our, our company's on there as well. And just through our website, um, you know, we've got uh, contact details and we, we tend to be pretty responsive. So uh, we, we welcome that. And Rob, thanks. It's been great chatting to you. Yeah, no worries. Uh, and great chatting to you as well. Um, those that are listening, uh, great episode. Appreciate if you can obviously share this amongst uh, people that you know in the industry, colleagues, even friends. You never know. Um, some of them may want to um, start making some investments. Um, and yeah, appreciate your continued support. So um, as always, uh, wish you well. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.